know. So as we, we jump into the discussion of relationships and marriage this morning, I think we can agree that the value of marriage and the picture or definition or description of a healthy marriage in our culture today is changing. The reality is, is that depending on what studies you look at, roughly 50% of marriage relationships end in divorce. The cohabitation rates are on the rise and there's been a stronger emphasis on finding the perfect person which usually finding the perfect person is finding that person that will not make you change at all, which then is assuming that you are already perfect. And so then you must find your equivalence of perfection out there. And we've, we've elevated this idea of me is greater than we. When a biblical concept of marriage, marriage really came in in Genesis chapter one when God created man and woman, there's a, actually a, a funny story about uh, a, a small child in Sunday school was learning about the story of Adam and Eve. And in the Bible, it says that God formed Eve out of a rib of, from Adam and that they are created and both created in God's image and that they're created equal. Well, this little child, this little kindergartner learned the story, went home and his side started hurting and, and says, honey, are you okay? And he said, I don't know, but I think I'm getting a wife. And so marriage really entered the scene in Genesis chapter 1, and sin didn't enter until Genesis chapter 3. And so it's this idea or this concept of relationship. And if you're not in a relationship, understand that some of the most prolific figures in history were also not married. So Jesus, Paul, and some others. And so you can take the foundations of these principles and apply it into your existing relationships. But Peter is going to be talking about marriage, Peter is married. It talks about his going over to his in-law's house, actually, in Scripture, and that a miracle took place there. Not the miracle of going over to the in-laws, but a miracle actually took place there, some healing. And so that, um, so he is a married apostle, follower of Jesus, writing to an early church that was facing persecution, and he gives principles of how that you can actually grow and, and grow in your relationship with God with how you treat those around you. But before we jump into that, I want to share a quote from a scholar named John Woody who said this about the changing, shifting nature of the idea of marriage in our culture today. He says, and I quote, the older ideal of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly but surely giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties involved. And again, it's this idea that me is greater than we. But what we find routinely in scripture that it's when you give of yourself and, and you humble yourself in the form of a servant that the we or the relationship is elevated. Jesus actually gave this display, and it was not in a marriage context. It was actually in close friendship or relationship with the disciples in John chapter 13. And really what was setting up as the Last Supper, he did something unthinkable, and he washed the feet of his disciples. Pastor Clark actually shared during the announcement time about how there's actually a group where they go down and serve the homeless this weekend on Saturday. There'll be a group that's actually washing the feet. Well, this, this role, this picture, 
of Jesus washing the defeat of feet of his disciples was a role that was saved for the lowest of low servants. And so he washes their feet. And Peter is actually one who's like, no, Jesus, you can't do that. You can't wash my feet. And, and he foreshadows really end up dying on a, he's going to die on a cross and that ultimately that he's going to provide washing of really not just your feet, but your soul. And then he gets to this interesting really paradigm-shifting, culturally-shifting command that he gives in John 13, 34, 35. And he says this. He says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my, that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, the command to love one another is not new. Even the command to love God is based out of what's known as the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So the difference, though, is that he says, the new command I give you is to love one another as I have loved you, as demonstrated by the fact that he washed their feet and then later and much greater of impact of actually dying on the cross for our sins. And so... In the Old Testament, you really see about 600 commands in the Old Testament. That was a lot to follow. And that's where guys who were called Pharisees got in trouble because they had rules on rules on rules. And so they, they loved rules. And so Jesus comes in and he says, let me simplify things for you and give you one. And to make it clear that everything else in your life will flow out of this one idea. That if you would love people the way that God has loved you, everything else would be transformed. And so what we see is that the rest of the New Testament is an outpouring and an outplaying of this new command. And so we see it in relationships in the church. We see it in how you deal with authority. Today we're going to see how this plays out or is applied in relationships and in marriage. And so everything points back to this. Let me give you another example. Paul is writing a letter. Now, Paul was not married, but Paul writes a letter, and, and, and it's there in Ephesians chapter 2 that we have this incredible verse of, you have been saved by grace through faith. And he talks about the power of that salvation and that you've been created for good works in the name of Jesus, and it's all this power. And then it gets to Ephesians chapter 4, and he says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in this love. Walk in this picture. And then he gets to Ephesians chapter 5, and he says this, and I put a couple verses on the screen for you, and it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look carefully then how you walk. This is verse 15 and 16. Not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And then in verse 21, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, I, and the reason I emphasize this is that the idea of relationship, a lot has been taken out of context within Scripture. And you're going to know what I'm talking about when we get to the passage that we're going to read together that's seen kind of as controversial in today's culture. But it's really not when you apply it how the disciples applied it. Because he's saying that submission is mutual in reverence to Jesus. 
And so there's a question out there is that what, what is it that happy couples know? What is the truth that happy couples, couples that go the distance, that have that legacy type relationship that we all long for to have? Well, what is it that these couples, these happy, these healthy, these holy couples know that sometimes we miss? Well, I believe it's this, is that they, they believe and know that relationships at its core, relationships are a race to the back of the line. Relationships, at its core, is a race to the back of the line. You are elevating we over me. That collectively, together, you are submitting to one another. This idea of submission or being subject to is the idea of not being right, but surrendering your rights. Jesus was equal to his heavenly father. But in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he submitted to the will of his father and laid his life down on a cross. And so the picture we have of submission is one of Jesus dying on the cross. But then also when you see this picture of you should love your spouse as Jesus did. Well, how did Jesus love the church? Because in Ephesians chapter 5, the continuation of the passage I was reading to you, it says that the, the marriage in a Christian culture, a Christian marriage is supposed to be a representation of Christ and the church and should be some of your greatest testimony within our culture where relationships are falling apart. It is how you love one another that should stand out. And that picture of love is Jesus. And so when he writes, the, when Paul is writing to wives, he's saying, be like Jesus. And when he's writing to husbands, he's saying, husbands, be like Jesus. And together, it's really an application of that new commandment that says, love one another as God has loved us. And so four ways that we see that relationships are a race to the back of the line, and I already mentioned one of them, and that is that we have to understand that submission is mutual. Submission is mutual. That it, it is a collective game. You're, it's a team sport. You're on the same side that in reverence to Jesus. If we're talking about power, Jesus used his power to show love. It talks about how love in Scripture casts out fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so we live out of that, and he gives you spirit to go and live that out. But secondly, we're going to see that relationships are a race to the back of the line because honor is love in action. Honor is love in action. And now we're going to go to a controversial passage. This was all a setup for this. But we're actually going to go to what was seen as controversial in their day, not our day. See, we're going to talk about rights between men and women and roles between men and women. And, and some of you kind of know where we're going. You're like, oh, let's see what he says here. And you're already a little bit angry at me. It's okay. Just wait. Um, but in our culture here is we have come so far actually because the teachings of Jesus have been applied in Western civilizations. And I say that because the person who valued 
women the most was actually Jesus. Jesus assigned value and showed and showed up and, and was friends with and did miracles for. And the, and the first ladies that were the first testimonies um, at, at his resurrection at the tomb. And that uh, it's been said that of any grouping of people, it should be ladies who are followers of Jesus because Jesus, before it was culturally accepted, lifted women up. And I say this because in that day, in the time of scripture, in ancient Near East, in Roman culture, Greek culture, women were described as property. They were described as property. They could be owned and sold and dismissed by men. They had no voting rights. They had no power. They, had, they could not even offer testimony in court. And so you're going to see this relationship between men and women. And so you're going to see someone talk about how ladies should treat men. And that's not going to be seen as controversial in that day because they're just seeing, well, that's just how life is. But then he goes to the men and he says, men, you need to do this. Like, wait, hold on a second. This is against everything our culture has taught us. And it's all centered around the topic of honor, which is love in action. So let's dive into this controversial in this day passage. It's 1 Peter chapter 3. We're actually going to start at verse 7 and then work our way kind of backwards. Peter is writing. Last week we just finished up 1 Peter chapter 2 and we talked about how our ultimate example of submission and suffering well is Jesus. Peter uses this word likewise. In other words, he's saying, hey, you know how I just talked about Jesus Likewise, you do the same thing. And he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. This is not a play on power. This is not a play on value. Because notice the very next phrase, since they are heirs with you of the, life, or of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We sang this morning about how you are seen as a child of God. I, I had the privilege uh, when I started dating Samantha, who's now my wife, to have a great relationship with my father-in-law. But I've heard interesting stories of guys who went to get the blessing of their father-in-law um, from who, and it just became a scary scenario. And, and so, and I understand now that I have a daughter and I'm just like, you just innately just like become super protective. And you're just like, ah, oh. you know, and that's why I've decided Chloe won't date until she's about 30, 35. And so, um, and so, and then you just have this protection. Now, here's the thing. If you are seen as a child of God, okay, guys in the room, you have to understand that how you treat that lady, that is God's daughter. And if God's daughter is there, and he's sustaining your existence. He doesn't have to take you out for the talk. He could end it right now. He could end your life. And so, like, we have to understand that how we treat one another as children of God matters. And so this idea of a weaker vessel is just a practical sense. It's not power. It's not value. And it's not even, it's just a generalization that, on average, guys physically are going to be stronger than ladies in the room. 
And so he's just making a statement and he's connecting it with honor. He's, what he's saying is, look, if they have the same value as you, if they are described as a daughter of the God who created them, then place yourself in a place of honor so that you can lift them up and that you use any strength that you have to honor them. And so you see this picture because really it's a challenge to guys for, to love ladies and, and there's a significant person in their life in four ways. Number one, guys are to love physically. Now, some guys said, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, got that down in a relationship. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Um, but what I'm saying is when I say to love physically, I mean to be present. He's saying here that we, this was in a culture where they would go off, they would do all kinds of things, and when you view someone as property, you don't treat them well. But you say, no, live with. This is an intentionality. So to be physically present. And your job might take you away. You might travel. You might go away. And so it's not practically possible to be physically present 100% of the time. But the goal then becomes that whenever you are there, be there 100%. This is where... Phones make it really tricky for relationships, doesn't it? To be present. We struggle, and I, and I include myself in this. It's very difficult to be present in the moment when you feel like you got something pressing in your pocket, right? Something buzzing, some, a message or email or communication that you have to respond to. And so the challenge here to live with is to love physically by living present. But next, we see in here that ultimately that we are to love intellectually. This means to live in an understanding way. So, and this is where it's difficult for some guys like myself, that we are called to listen, to understand, not to reply. I know everyone's wired differently, but my personality is that I'm wired to try to fix something. And so even to this day, right? Uh, Samantha will say something to me, and in my head, I'm like, oh, we'll just do this. And it's like, well, no, I just want you to validate my feelings, right? I'm like, well, I don't want to validate. I just want to fix it and move on. Come on, there's a game on. Let's, let's figure it out. And so I've learned that, like, in, in loving someone well, in loving my spouse well, it's about listening to understand, not necessarily listening to reply, and to be connected with face-to-face -face and side-to-side. So guys, we need to love physically by living present. We need to love intellectually by listening to understand, not just to reply. We need, third, we need to love emotionally. This means to honor in everything. That it, it's one thing to provide, and that's healthy, but are you honoring in an emotional way to connect at that level? Are you willing to be vulnerable? And that's difficult in our culture. We're starting to get better at that. But in most cases, okay, especially if you just go back, even in the last 20, 30 years, in most cases, if you look at a sitcom or a drama, it's always the dad or father figure that is dumb, that is not present, that is not healthy, and then usually it's the kids are left to fend for themselves and then figure it out. And then it's usually an obscure character that then saves the day. Our culture has not portrayed men in a very strong 
loving way. It's not been seen as cool to be vulnerable. And so, but yet if we want to love well, what he's saying here is that we have to love emotionally by being willing to be vulnerable and to express feelings. And even saying that as a guy, that's tough for me to admit. I'm just being real with you, okay? So we're to love physically, intellectually, emotionally, but then also spiritually. That last phrase is kind of terrifying. It says in there, it says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's almost a sense of God saying, why am I going to answer your prayers if you're not loving my daughter? In the Lord's Prayer, a similar concept, it says, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. Understanding that we can love others the way that God has loved us is expressed when we spiritually lead our families well. So relationships, at its core, if we want to be successful, is a race to the back of the line. It's putting we over me. It's acknowledging that submission is mutual in reverence for Jesus and that honor is love in action. I used to say this all the time to our students. Um, I was a youth pastor for about 12, 13 years. And what was interesting in, in the age of adolescence, here's what they're finding. They're scientifically finding this, is that 15 is the new 25 and 25 is the new 15. Here's what I mean by that, is that because of technology, kids are exposed more as kids now than ever before. So 25 things that people were not learning until they were 25, they're not really, now they're learning at 15. And what's scary is it's probably younger than that. If you're thinking about having some difficult conversations with your kids, I want to encourage you to do that because I guarantee they've already heard something at school. And I'd rather have them hear and learn and discuss it in a healthy context from family than from a friend who doesn't even know what they're talking about at school. And so 25 is kind of the new 15 because people are being exposed to things quicker, sooner, and then it's this pressure just built on. But then on the flip side, 15 is the new 25, because they're graduating, people are graduating. They have a lot of debt. We went through back in 08, there was this big recession. We're kind of coming on the other side of that, but they have this debt. Everything's more expensive. Um, I've done some really some scholarly research stuff, not myself, but really synthesized it for a doctorate work that I'm working on right now about next generation leadership. But they said 30 years ago, the difference between someone who was 65 and 35 financially was eight to one. So 30 years ago, if you were 65, you most likely had eight times more money than a 35-year-old. Do you want to know what the separation is today? 20 to 1. So the same age gap today, if you're 65 versus 35, most likely, on average, is a 20 to 1 difference. And so costs went up, education went up, people went in. At the same time, starting income kind of stayed Similarly, and there wasn't as many positions because now people are working longer. And so you had this group of people who went through with 50% of marriages ending in divorce. So they don't trust marriage. They don't trust institutions. Everything's made more expensive. And so you see a lot more common people saying, well, I'm just going to wait. 
And so they wait to start relationships. They wait to buy houses. They wait to go through all this stuff. And so you see this. That's why it's so difficult for people to respond and go through this transition time. But what I challenged our students for 12 years, and I want to challenge the guys that are here, that if you want to make a difference, if you want to live a life and have a relationship that has an eternal impact, and you want to impact your community, at some point in time, the boy sits down and the man stands up. At some point in time, you got to decide that I'm going to own my faith. I'm going to own my life. I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. I'm going to choose to love my spouse well. I'm going to choose to serve and to use anything in my power so that I can make a difference for him and that I can love people the way that Jesus loved us. Because our culture does not need more boys that can shave. Our culture needs men of God who can serve. Amen? And so we've been challenged to do that, and we can rise up and do that, and we have the example of Jesus to follow. So this is all as we continue on. Now we're going to move to what's seen as controversial in our culture's time. And it's going to be here in verses, we're going to go here, verse 1 and 2, and it's just, ultimately, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, that respect wins relationships. Respect wins relationships. This is going to be the passage, these next two. This is where you might go, and that's okay. Understand that the fact that you might cringe at this means that we've come a long way as a culture. And that, that cringing is actually an understanding of what Scripture means. Here it is. Likewise, referring to ladies like Jesus, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This is lifestyle evangelism. He's not saying not to speak. He's saying that your life will speak louder than what you say. Same thing works with Jesus. In Romans 2.4, it says, it is the kindness of Jesus, the kindness of God that leads me to Repentance. And so he's writing in a context where if you are in a married relationship or dating relationship where one is not a Christian or not a believer, he's saying live in a way that shows purity and shows respect so that they can see that you are different. It's this idea of respect winning relationships. And it's connected. Now, if there's safety involved, if there's abuse involved, you need to get out. You need to be safe and to love in that context. There's a whole nother message for a whole nother day about that. But in this case, what he's saying is that it's not about nagging. It's not about trying to run everything and trying to control everything and complete control of everything that you will do what I say or else. It's this idea of respect. And it works hand in hand when the person is respecting and loving and serving you. This is why submission is mutual. And then we go on to the last thing here, and that is that our value comes from God. Our value comes from God. And I'm going to be just honest with you, this is, this is a weird passage, but understand the context for which it's given, and then we're going to talk about the principles that still apply to us today. So the first one, being subject to your husband, is saying, show respect, in the same way that husbands, we need to love and serve and sacrifice for our wives, wives need to show respect for what they do and who they are in their relationships. So verse 3, 
It says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That was a title, not referring to God, but just a title of reference. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So there you have it. If you have braided hair, you are in sin. No, I'm just kidding. It's not true. It's not saying that. Okay. What he's saying is that your value, your worth, does not come from that. It's not saying that you cannot wear jewelry. He's saying that your jewelry will not add value to you. That your beauty is imperishable. He uses the same word imperishable to describe faith in chapter one. And so what he's saying is your beauty is of the same value as eternal life with God. And that he, you, are, you have been created in his image and you are beautiful and you are amazing as God created you. So don't get your value from products. Don't get your value from a comment from a coworker. Don't get your value by the looks or things that are around. It's not saying don't dress up and, and don't do things there. What he's saying is that your value is so much bigger than that, that your worth comes from God and that your beauty comes from within. And that when you live in that way, the lives are changed. Relationships at its core are a race to the back of the line. And we see that when we love people like Jesus loved us. This means that submission is mutual. This means that honor is love and action. This means that respect ultimately wins relationships. And then finally, your value does not come from what you wear, but whose you are. And so to remember the greatest picture of love, we're going to move now into a time where we take communion. And so I'm going to invite the band up on stage and to give you a heads up what we're about to do that once a month as a, as a rhythm of a church family, as a church ordinance, we take what's called communion. There's going to be a plate that passes by. And if, if you're not sure what you believe yet, if this feels weird, I want to give you permission to let it pass by. But if you love God, if you believe in Jesus, I want you to take these elements as a picture for your marriage or your relationships that you're in right now. And we're going to pray together as a body. And then we're going to take them together in remembrance of how Jesus died for us so that we could live for him and love people in our lives the way that Jesus loved us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we trust you with who you are. God, you did not consider your power something to hold over us, but rather you sacrificed your life so that we could experience your love. This is the picture of a healthy relationship. And so God, it's my prayer that as guys, that we can love fully, physically and intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, God. I pray that we can honor God for the ladies in this room in their relationships. I pray that they can 
lead with respect, get their identity and their beauty from God, and that collectively together we can serve you and love each other well. God, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for loving us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.